0: Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Olaf Bosweik has been running Trow, one of the world's most highly regarded clubs for the last five years. And on January 3rd, 2015, at the height of the Amsterdam club's influence and popularity, it'll shut down for good. Trouw was always meant to be temporary. Its home, a former newspaper press, was long ago slated for redevelopment. But that doesn't make it any easier to swallow. It's difficult to imagine Amsterdam, much less Europe, without the two-room industrial party space. To hear Olaf tell it though, it might have been unthinkable at the start of the club's run that they would have made it as far as they have. Trou's story is an interesting one, as is the way Olaf, who worked in radio and music journalism before delving into the notoriously tricky nightclub business, ended up at the helm. We were keen to get it on record before the last dance, so we invited Olaf to join us on stage at this year's ADE for a live edition of The Exchange. Final ADE as the guy who runs Trowel. I would imagine that that sort of colors the experience. What does that mean for this ADE? How, do, how does it change things?
1: The schedule is a lot different. Normally, I would have a lot of meetings. I would want to meet people or book certain artists or get to know certain people, but. I don't have anything to sell anymore, I don't have any real dates to book anymore, so that's different. This year it's a lot of interviews actually, because Trouw is closing and people want to know the story. So um, yeah, that's a different schedule. But apart from that it's also very much the same, it's just running five nights with two to three rooms a day and yeah, all the stuff that goes on, which, which is pretty hectic. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the nightclub
0: business. You've been doing trial for five years, but you were doing quite a bit before then as well. How did this all
1: kick off? I think it sort of started when I um, finished what we would call high school and didn't really know what to do, but was sure I wanted to do something in the music industry. There weren't so much university degrees or or schools that I could go to that fitted my talents. I wasn't really good, I played drums or piano, but I wasn't good enough to really go to a proper music school. And then I found out about SAE, which was the school for audio engineering, and I thought that would be a a nice way to kind of get to know music and recording music and a bit of the business side and maybe see if I could get somewhere through that. And uh, it's actually funny, my old teacher is sitting here at the front. (laughs) Through there I I got into uh, an internship at a radio station, New Dance Radio, which was at the time the only national radio station broadcasting electronic music. It was only on cable and there I just started doing like technical things, helping the shows run. And it was the station where a lot of the old-school classic Dutch house DJs played then that got taken over by ID&T, which is, you know, people probably all know id and by now. I worked there for five, six years, yeah, running the radio station basically. Until I had enough of it, I didn't like the direction the radio station was going in, it was getting very commercial and... I felt I needed to follow my own path. Then I, I, I left ID&T and basically became a music journalist, part-time DJ and started promoting some parties.
0: What kind of stuff were you uh, writing about as a music journalist?
1: Well, it's funny, it, as soon as I left id and they were the first ones to actually hire me back freelance for their magazine. So I would do interviews with, with DJs and musicians and write CD reviews, album reviews, vinyl reviews, that kind of thing. And do a radio station together with Gert van Veen. Yeah, so I kind of stayed involved in that sense.
0: And then how does that lead into nightclubs? I know you were working as a
1: booker, my brother and his partners were always in the restaurant business and then they had this opportunity to start a club called Eleven. And he really wanted me, you know, just because I was his little brother, he wanted me involved to do the music. And that was kind of like a childhood dream, like, okay, you do the restaurant side and you do the music side. But he started the business with another guy who was actually the booker at the time and the owner, so it was, you know, there was no question about it, I was not... I was not going to do that, and I was working at id at the time, so my references weren't that good for the kind of club they were starting, it was a completely different background. But after a year and a half or two years, Eleven was doing really great as a restaurant, the club had a really good and very specific music profile, very contemporary about you know electro, uh, electro and, and electro clash kind of stuff at the time. but it just wasn't working, so kind of sneakily, my brother invited me to help out with press and PR, and I started up writing newsletters, doing pre-sale at rush hour or, you know, setting up that kind of thing, uh, recording DJ sets at night, and then putting them online at 3 for 12, which is one of the online and and radio platforms in Holland. And through that, I actually got to know Lex, the owner and the booker, really well and, 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 I think we got a really good connection and he trusted me with yeah with bringing in some ideas and and in the end I I took over his job and um, worked as the main booker there for the last two and a half years.
0: I can imagine that was incredibly fun but also quite a challenge kind of getting thrown into the ring as a booker like that. Tell me a little bit about the learning process.
1: Well at the time it couldn't have gone any worse. I mean, I, I remember coming in and like some of the bar and restaurant staff were like, oh, so you're going to do the club? <laughs> well, good luck. Like, So I had nothing to lose. And there was a lot of trust from my brother and the owners to, you know, to do good things. It was not about making money. It was not about commercialism. It was about doing what we believed in. And that was very, very clear from day one. So... I learned very, very early on to just follow my own intuition and my own music taste. So I would just, you know, try to book the artist that I thought, hey, why are these people not playing in Amsterdam? And I would invite them and um, some would work, some wouldn't work. And you slowly get to know how that whole process works and you get to know some agents and some artists. And yeah, from then on, it kind of starts working.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you sort of learned early on that it was better to follow your intuition a bit than to try to give people what, what you thought they wanted.
1: Yeah, because I always found it quite hard to think from the other side what people want. I believe that if I really like it, I'm sure there's going to be 10 or 100 other people that are going to really like it. And if I'm super passionate about what I do, hopefully that's going to you know, somehow vibe onto other people
0: yeah 11 was a really classic club here in amsterdam that's my understanding it was on the 11th floor of an office building correct yeah it was the old dutch
1: national post building mm-hmm.
0: yeah and it had the sound system that's now at Trouw, but it was also always meant to be a, a temporary club much like Trouw is why was
1: that it's something that stems from Kuhn, who's one of my other partners, and he's been doing clubs before Eleven and Restaurant, and he's always been doing temporary things, and he kind of passed that on to all of us now involved with Eleven and Trow. And the philosophy about it is basically trying to get hold of places that you can only access for a couple of years, and you can only access them because there's other plans with the buildings, which makes it interesting because you, know, you only have a small, a small amount of time to do whatever you want to do. And in that time, you have to do it. And you have to make it happen and fulfill your dreams. At the same time, it's interesting for the owners of the buildings because often the building is empty for a while. <laughs> and it kind of channels all the energy towards the end. And when it's done, there's no other way than to stop on the highest point on the climbing. It's no other way. Well, yeah, most nightclubs anyway, have a
0: somewhat short lifespan, typically at least. I mean, a nightclub is maybe going to be cool for a few years, tops, and then it's sort of maybe this long, slow decline, and then finally it closes, they run out of money, or the people don't want to do it anymore. It kind of takes care of that tendency.
1: Yeah, because I mean the owner might change or the booker might change, or something new happens in music, and then it kind of goes down and. From my experience now with Eleven and Trout, I would say it takes at least two to three years, like like any other business, to to build something, to create something that actually works and is good. And then you can kind of work off that for a year or two years, and then it's done. And then you have to start all over again and reinvent yourself again. And I think that's actually super exciting. I mean, the prospect of me doing Trout for another ten years would terrify me, really. And why is that? Because it's super intense. I think what people do not understand about running clubs, it looks like, ah, oh, yeah, you must be partying every weekend. It must be great. Well, no, you're not. You're actually taking care that all you guys can party, which is a completely different job. And it's all these different things tied into one. It's music. It's production and logistics. It's marketing. It's business. It's managing staff, managing expectations. All that kind of stuff, and it doesn 't stop during the week I mean I've also had a lot of people ask me, so, oh, what do you do during the week then well, there's a hundred people working at trow there's i don 't know probably anywhere between ten and twenty artists every week there's a, a restaurant five days a week, so it's just continues
0: let 's talk a bit about that transition from eleven into Trow. You ended up taking the helm at Trow, how was that decision
1: made? How, how did you end up in, in those shoes? I guess when, when Eleven stopped and we knew it was gonna end, there was that question, okay, so what, what next? And I was one of the young guys and I had the feeling like, okay, I've, I kind of run this club now. So I wanna be involved in the next one. And that's what I told my brother and Kuhn. And they were like, yeah, great. That's, that fits their philosophy as well. So we all tried to find the next spot and secretly moved all the stuff, like the sound system, into Trow already at the end of 11. People didn't know about that. We went on holiday, started working on the plan, and from then on, you kind of just start talking about, okay, who's going to do what and who's going to be like the owners or who's going to have how many shares. And I guess because music is such a, the main part of running a nightclub, and that was always my role, I naturally became that person at Trow, But it was completely different. I mean, I was in a very, very protected environment in Eleven, and I could just, you know, book DJs and kind of be involved with the marketing and promotion side and the production side, have dinner with them on Friday and Saturday night and and drink beer and have fun. But starting a business and building a club and all those aspects that I just talked about, doing that yourself is completely different. So in the first two years, I was just, I was swamped.
0: Yeah, I mean, when did it become clear that this was going to be a markedly different task than what you were doing back at 11? I mean,
1: was that something that you realized right away, like, wow, this yeah, is, quite this is soon, not my old job? Quite soon, because you have so many decisions to make and nobody else is going to make them for you. Once you're in the the owner see, mm-hmm. whether it's finances or, or permits or what colour the walls are going to be, what menu you're serving, what the logo is going to be, all, all of these decisions somehow come back to you. Mm-hmm. So that's completely different than just deciding what music is being played. Mm-hmm. My understanding too was the first couple of
0: years of Trou were a challenge. It was hard to make money.
1: there there were a lot of issues with the club take us through some of those challenges well the main the main problem happened pretty much straight away we found this amazing space and we fell in love with it and we started building the club and we thought we could do it with the same amount of money that we invested at 11 at the time and in 11 if you don't know the space that was an old gym floor it was where all the post Delivery people played basketball or football and where the team was and where the kitchen was. So all the infrastructure was there. There were emergency exits. There was a kitchen. There was ventilation, all that stuff. Trow, however, was an old newspaper printing warehouse. So that was made for machines. It was an industry building. So making that accessible and workable for humans and for a club and for a restaurant was a completely different thing. So we ended up... Spending twice the amount of money that we budgeted. But you know, you're building the club. So I remember calling my brother like, hey, I don't know how we're going to make this. I mean, we've already spent 400,000 euros and we only have 300,000 euros. Yeah, you just got to finish the club. You have to open in a month. There's there's no other way. We can't stop. So basically, it created this thing where from day one, we were behind 200,000 euros in cash flow. And then what happens is you you start kind of lending that from all the suppliers. So whether it's the DJs or the beer company or anybody that's supplying us, you're kind of lending it off them because you're paying their invoices, not within 30 days, but within 60 days or within 90 days. And that happened for a good part of two or three years. And it just got so hard at some point where you're just only spending time managing that, that, especially my position where you're actually supposed to have a free mind to be creative, it was not possible anymore. So we had to, you know, we'd already downsized many times, but then we had to really properly downsize the whole organization, make some really tough choices. And at the same time, it was apparent that me being the, the kind of, for a while I was also doing finance and the general management, and that just didn't work. I, I couldn't, so I kind of stepped back and just did the creative part, and we got new people in, First, my brother for a couple of months to restore order and organization. And then we hired Kim Tan, who's now still the general manager, to just really focus on the organization. And yeah, those two decisions were really, really important because it kind of relieved me so I could get back to music and all the things that are actually really important for the club.
0: It seems to me that the reaction that maybe a lot of club owners would have to a situation like that, being in the hole by a lot of money, would be like, okay, I, I guess we're going to have to do something more commercial with the music. We're going to have to get more people through the door. I mean, was there ever a point when you thought, oh, no, I'm going
1: to have to stray away from my musical vision with this? Not really. I mean, you always have to think about like, how many people are coming through the door, and you always have to have within the whole array of, of nights that we have, there's always going to have to be like, two or three that are, you know, sure shots. Of course, we did think about those. But I, I wouldn't know how to only book commercial names. I wouldn't know how to only attract external promoters that just rent your venue and make sure that you have your income. I just couldn't do it. It's it's not an option. And I think we all kind of knew that it was possible because actually the nights were all very good. Or most of the nights were good. I mean from the outside, I think a lot of people at the time didn't really see it was a struggle. It was actually it was an okay club. The problem was really internal. The problem was not with the music programmation or with what we were doing at the time. There was a problem with the restaurant. We, we all didn't really support what we were doing there. and That's why we, after three years, two years, we completely redid the restaurant and invested more money. And from then on, we kind of started creeping back up.
0: Something that I feel like we've been kind of dancing around a little bit, but I want to I wanna ask about it specifically. What is the philosophy behind Trow? I mean, sort of, what was
1: your idea with this club? What did you want to do with this club specifically? I think we always work from the characteristics and basics of the space. So the building has been very important and is always leading in what we do. So the building, how it feels, how it sounds, already determines a lot about, you know, what kind of things you can do there. And that determined that we didn't want to do We wanted to do something that was really very basic, just an amazing sound system and great music, great DJs, and no special concepts or decor or whatever. Just super, super basic. And at the same time trying to create some kind of long-term vision with resident DJs that at the same time represent Amsterdam but could rival any other European city. And I always felt that Amsterdam needed a club that should have some kind of international appeal. Having said that, it's also very much about what everybody involved in the company just brings to the table, about what they really like in terms of food and in terms of art and in terms of music. It's very much that a lot of people in, in the company have a say in what we all do. And I think that's kind of been very important to, to create this family feeling that. I think is now very, very strong in the club and why people are going to be already really sad that we're going to close because it's the family and, and, you know, the home of the family is going to end at some point.
0: You know, I asked you before sort of about the challenges with running this club. and, And I feel like I've been sort of asking a lot about this, maybe this negative aspect of running a nightclub. I'm curious, though, about what was really positive. I mean, was there something that you really loved about doing this
1: from kind of being in that? in that top spot, kind of right from the get-go? Yeah, many things. I mean, it's taught me so much in life about a lot of relationships I've had, whether it's with my girlfriend and now wife, or with my best friends, just interacting with people, with, with the staff, with visitors or whatever. It's been an amazing and still is a really, really valuable life experience. I think that's the biggest thing for me and at the same time discovering what I really like, you know, what's important to me, finding out that I really have a passion about music and art and food, and I I want to be involved with all of them for a long time. I might not start a club again, I'm not sure, but I definitely always want to be involved with music and art and food, and you kind of have to learn that over the years and develop your own taste and your own philosophy. So originally, You thought that Trow
0: had two years, right? And then it became clear that it was going to end up being five years. There was
1: first an extension to four years and then later another extension.
0: So you're sort of getting up maybe to about that fourth year. You're starting to see the date on the calendar. How does that feel? What started going through your mind? I mean, when did you start making those sort of final plans?
1: I guess once you see the last year coming up, you already start. Planning. I mean, you, you already start thinking about what could we do, and thinking about it. But really concretely, we didn't start until like just before the summer. There's always so much going on. It's really, really hard to to think six months ahead. Mm-hmm. And still now, there's a lot of stuff to do still for December and January. But it's kind of it's kind of planned, and I think there will be some special things going on. And the amazing thing, I think since July, August, when actually the public and the crowd has seen the end date. That kind of creates this enormous intensity and energy and a bit of an emotional vibe already. Because a lot of people are coming for the last time already now during ADE, or some DJs are having their last nights. and I kind of describe it as the emo button has been turned on like last month or two months ago. By the time that the, the
0: date is starting to come up on the calendar, the club has... Become quite a bit more successful at this point. You've gotten over those those challenges. Uh, Did you have this thought, like, oh wow, like we've just overcome everything, and now we have to start thinking about how to close this whole thing down?
1: No, to be honest, not because I I know that's a question that everybody always asks, but for me, it's it's so clear and so ingrained that it's temporary. That it's never a question in my mind. You know, maybe if we would have got like another six months or a year, we might have done that. But I also think five or six years is a really nice... It's like I kind of believe in those life cycles, and it kind of fits. I think it's a good time. Although I know I'm going to be heartbroken in a couple of months, I'm also going to be relieved, because it's also an opportunity to do something completely different, mm-hmm. or to just take some time off. And it's going to be an opportunity for the, for the other people in the company to maybe start their own place. There's always going to be great things coming from it. It's not a sad thing that it's ending. How do you give a club
0: a sort of fitting send-off? I mean, what's your concept for these, for these last couple of months?
1: It's not really different than what we always do. Just think that it gets intenser, the nights get better. The people experience it differently, the DJs experience it differently. We, as the people behind the club, experience it differently. So, of course, we'll be doing maybe bigger lineups, longer nights, that kind of thing, but it's not really different than what we've been doing in the last years.
0: I'm sure that you've been kind of looking back over the last five years quite a lot recently. I was wondering if there were any particular nights that really stand out, like a a night that you're kind of always going to look back on and think, man, that was trial for
1: me. Yeah, there's a couple of things that come to mind, specifically in the first months. I remember we, we were just open like a couple of months, or a couple, no, a couple of weeks actually, and we were going to do this night with Code 9 and Space Ape, but we had a major problem with a wall upstairs that was leaking a lot of low frequency. And Code 9's rider has something written in it like bass, bass, and even more fucking bass than you can imagine. So we decided to do it downstairs in the verdieping, which actually at the time was planned to be like a cultural and art space. We never thought of it as a second room. So we just put the sound system in there and quickly build up a bar and we did the night there and it was it was amazing. We suddenly discovered this potential in that room. Another night would be when The Widest Boy Alive played, which for me is still the standout concert because it was so incredibly hot. We were still really struggling with ventilation. This was also in the first two months of the club, I think. And the band and Erland Oy, the singer, didn't want to go on stage because it was so hot outside or in, in, the, in the club and so frightening to them, the intensity, because it's so close and so narrow. So in the end, I convinced them and they as I started playing the first two songs. And It was so hot that Dan, my, my other partner and the club manager kind of ran on stage and started throwing out water bottles and it kind of, broke the ice and from then on the band and the crowd could relax and it was really one of the most memorable concerts we've had.
0: Over the last five years that you've been running Trow, a lot has changed in Amsterdam's electronic music scene as well.
1: What have you seen happen in this city since you've been running Trow? Well, so sometimes it's hard for me to see because actually I don't go to a lot of other places anymore. It's the always occurring dilemma of do I actually go somewhere else and see something that's maybe different and interesting, or do I actually stay at trial because I have things to do there? But what I can see is there has been an enormous growth in the amount of clubs, the amount of promoters, the amount of DJs, labels. There's a much stronger scene, and I think there's actually, you know, more and more reasons for people outside of Amsterdam to come to Amsterdam because there's something interesting about this, this city that <coughs> makes it stand out. The festivals, of course, has been a major, major force in, in driving this, t- this city to, to I think, one of the most special places in the world for, for clubbing. And in the last two years, I think the whole 24-hour licensing thing has changed a lot as well. I'm, I'm starting, especially now, last summer and, and now during ADE, there's more tourists than ever in town. And I kind of have the feeling that you know, people have been going to Berlin or maybe to Barcelona for years, and now they think like, oh, hey, I can do a weekend of clubbing in Amsterdam because I can do the same there. That's changing things as well. Yeah, that was something that happened a couple of years
0: ago here, that yeah. there was suddenly the ability for just a couple of clubs to get these 24-hour
1: licenses. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that was a real game changer for trial. Yeah, and it requires a completely different approach we've always been used to stopping at five and maybe four times a year we'd be able to go to seven. And like on, on the RA nights at ADE would always stop at seven and then you know, secretly have all the DJs and some guest list people kind of go into this room and have a breakfast there from seven till eight or nine and then open it again at nine. If you don't know what time the club is stopping, because that's kind of dependent on the dj and the vibe and the crowd then the staff doesn't know till what time they're working and that's that creates a big motivation problem and then you realize how important the bar staff is and that they're actually the backbone of the whole thing so we changed a lot of things in in the infrastructure and the logistics of of that side of the company and just started playing around with stretching nights instead of completely going Overboard with 24-hour marathons and stuff and slowly started building them up To be honest, it's still hit and miss. We still have these 30-hour marathons that go from Saturday to Monday, which are amazing and pretty full and we also we also still have them that there's only One o'clock Sunday afternoon, and there's only 50 or 100 people there and that's when I think Okay, in Amsterdam, we're always talking about the panorama bar or Berlin or whatever and now we actually have the same chance to do whatever we can do there, here, and we're not doing it. And there's always been this talk in Amsterdam about why are not restaurants open until 2 o'clock in the morning? Why can't I get any decent food? Well, because we're actually still a small town. We're not New York. We don't have that 24-hour economy yet. We're slowly getting there, and it's a really good step that it's now happening, but we're not there yet. I'm sure that this is
0: a question that You've been asked probably 10 or 15 times just today. I think it's probably what everybody is curious about. What happens after trial? Do you know? Are you able to talk about it?
1: I don't really know. Um, I think nobody knows. What I do know is I'm personally gonna try and take some time off to reflect on the last six years and to kind of process it all. And I need some, some time to think about what I wanna do with my life. At the same time, there is this younger generation in the club, and there's all these d j s and there's all this you know this family and this infrastructure that and they all want to continue so i mean I'm not going to stop that. I would love them to continue and I think what we've built is you know bigger than anyone or me it's not It's not down to me to decide whether it goes on or not so I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure there's a new spot and to help those people to, to get a financing and, and to get a permit and all that kind of stuff. And for the rest, it should be up to them. It should be their, their baby and their, their project. Well, that's kind of how you were left. Exactly. It requires a bit of you know, giving them the right direction and a bit of help, but it also requires, it's like parenting, you need, also need to let them go and make their own mistakes. And I went through exactly the same. And the first two years, I was always looking at my, my older brother and Kuhn like, Oh, what should I do? And this is a problem, and this is a problem. And they were like, yeah, I don't know, it's your business, figure it out. And that actually taught me a lot more than them telling me what to do. Still, I would
0: imagine that you have sort of accrued quite a bit of knowledge about this over the years. And I'm sure that there's advice that you would give to your former colleagues for starting a club, or really to anybody for starting a club. Is there something that, you know, if, if somebody comes up to you and says, "I, I want to start a nightclub, I want to do something like Trow," what advice would you would you give to them?
1: It's a bit of a cliche, but do what you feel. Don't do Trow. That's been. That's done. Do something that you feel is the next step. Is something that is really strong and is your idea and is your vision. Because then it's going to be strong. It's not going to be good if people copy whatever Trow was. And I also firmly felt that after 11. Of course you can benefit and try to incorporate all the good things about 11 and the philosophy. We took a lot of that, of course. But at the same time, we wanted things to be really different at some point. You have to be able to see the difference. Otherwise it's it's nothing. It's just a copy. So that's what I'm saying to them. And um, yeah, to really trust their own instincts and their own intuition.
0: I'm curious to you if there's if there's something about running a nightclub, maybe a preconception that you had that turned out to be false, or conversely, something that you thought wouldn't be true that ended up being true about running a nightclub. Does anything Mm. come to mind about
1: that? Well, I guess I thought I would make a lot of money. (laughs) And it's not true. (laughs) No, it's not true. So, I mean, at the time we thought, okay, we got this space for two years. We've done this amazing club, 11, it's so successful. We're just gonna move everybody there kind of do it differently, and then in two years we'll, we'll be fine. And we've made it some money, and yeah, not true. <laughs> totally not true. Mm-hmm. You said that you're going to take
0: some, some time off after early January of this year when the club closes. Uh, dream vacation, do you, do you have a, a hobby that you'd like to take up? You said you want to do some, some reflecting,
1: but I'm, I'm sure you want to have some fun too. Yeah, the plan is to, to go to North America and get a camper van and try and drive all the way to South America. That's my plan. It won't happen until April or May because there's a lot of stuff to finish. You know, we have to, of course, empty the space. That's going to happen in two to three weeks quite quickly already. But then there's, you know, the administrative side and the business side. And at the same time, there might be a new spot that that needs some help and some direction, and I want to be able to spend some time on that. And for the rest, I I really don't know. And I'm actually really looking forward to that moment of relief and not having any responsibility and not having any plan. I think that that's going to be a really nice experience. Yeah, well, we wish you all the best of luck with that. Does anybody
0: have anything they want to ask Olaf?
1: I was at Trou two days ago at
0: Rush Hour party and at a moment when I saw I was uh, behind the DJ and very near the, the records and everything at the downstairs dance floor. And I told there's
1: a concept in the club that you can go everywhere. You thought about that before? Just happened when you opened the club? No, that just happened. Funnily enough, specifically downstairs, as I said, it wasn't meant as a second room or as a club. And as the first two, three years we always had money issues. We never really finished it and I think that's one of the charms. It is a conscious decision to have the DJ booth on the floor on eye level with the crowd. But apart from that, no. I mean, we didn't even ever specifically build a DJ booth downstairs. It's always just like, you know, one of those riser tables and the Yeah, sound you, you
0: put it together every time, more or less, right?
1: Yeah, because it is kind of a multifunctional space. There is other stuff going on there during the week sometimes. So sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm jealous when I go to something like Robert Johnson or something, which is just a club, and everything is built in, and everything is fixed. And you never have to move the sound system or the mixer or whatever. But I also think this really has its charm. You always see a lot of first-time visitors kind of like, oh, can I actually be here? And then it's like, oh, yeah, I can be here, cool. People are not used to that in clubs. And upstairs, it's, it's been very, very important that the stage is there. And the stage is there naturally, it was there. And the DJ booth was from Eleven and the sound system was from Eleven. So we just put it there for the first time and it's always been like that. And it's just a very natural way where you can kind of stand around and behind the DJ. And it's, it kind of creates this arena feeling where everybody can kind of get close. And yeah, it's a real good energy point. Yeah.
0: I think we have one, another question. Uh, yes, I have a question, Olaf. I was at Barshowers' party too, Wednesday night. And it was extremely, well, DJ's playing extremely well, but there were also... Ex- a lot of people. So you're almost involuntarily crowd surfing because of the people gathering in the space. I know of course there's a capacity, but what you see right now is tickets are selling out so fast and it almost becomes bigger than itself. How do you keep it, so to say, within the family or part of a celebration of the club culture that it was in those last three months? How do you prevent it from becoming like a hive machine?
1: Well, let me admit one thing. On Wednesday there was a hundred people too many inside because somebody made a mistake at the door counting tickets. So that's why it was so crazy busy. How to keep it family is to somehow restrict the amount of pre-sale. We tried earlier this year to ban pre-sale completely to bring in some kind of what I would consider to be more old school where you can decide on the day, okay, Laurent Gagné is playing, I wanna go and you have the equal amount of chance as the other person to, to get in line and to get your ticket. But that created lines of two, three hours and you know, you know what happened. We changed it back. So I think it's, it's down to getting this mix of some pre sale so anybody can come, whether you're from London or Maastricht or Den Helder, a mix of door sale so that you know you always have a chance of getting in if you're willing to stand in line. And, of course, guest list and paid list, which is you know, the people that we all know and we think should be there. Like any night, it uh, doesn't matter how many nights you've done, there's never a magic formula. It's a bit like chemistry, you know, you're, you're just adding and mixing things.
0: And if I may ask one question more? If you'd open a club again, what would you do differently? Would you do anything differently?
1: Well, my feeling right now is that Amsterdam would need something very small. Something like Robert Johnson, that is like 300 people. Lots of DJs just playing all night long sets. It kind of, I think there's, there should be some kind of counter reaction to how big and commercial the scene is growing. There should be something that is, you know, maybe a bit more not so visible online, not so much about which huge DJ is playing, not so much about marketing. That's what I would feel. But I'm getting old.
0: You know, that, that is an interesting question, actually, about what sort of club Amsterdam needs. I mean, on the one hand, there's this thought that well, you guys are leaving, so something could, could fill that void. But, sounds like you think there's maybe some benefit in having a different type of club,
1: something that, that isn't already in the mix. Well, I really believe that no other club is going to fill it. And not because I think that trial is the greatest thing on earth or anything, but because that's always happened in history. After the Roxy, there was never a new Roxy. If Paradiso ever closes, there will never be another Paradiso. It just doesn't work that way. And I really remember what a little Tony, who is a DJ and club owner from Helsinki, and I think he's done 10 clubs in the course of the last 20 years. He, he really told me at the end of 11 when I started Trow. remember, if you start a new club, you think you're going to bring all the old crowd and everybody there and... It's not. You start again. Because a lot of people going to Trou now will either stop going out because that was their favorite club and they were studying at the time or they always used to go with that friend and their girlfriend and blah blah blah. It kind of marks these, these cycles in your life. So I firmly believe that when Trou closes that there will have to be something else and we don't know what that is but it will be new, it will be different and it will be great in its own way I hope. And of course it would be great if, if somehow these places are inspired by what we've done. But I hope they will also be completely different. Cause then we're you know, we're progressing.
0: You must have been in that closet the whole time. No one heard shit. Call TSS. now. Media, back.